From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, Parent Perspectives on Racial Equity in Early Childhood. I'm Diane Halsey, President and CEO of The Family Partnership, a Minneapolis, Minnesota-based nonprofit focused on human services and early childhood. I have worked in the field of early childhood, human services, and policy for over 30 years, and I'm the host of the Early Risers podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Richard Lee. I'm Rich Lee. I'm a professor of psychology and director of the Asian American Studies program at the University of Minnesota. And for the past 25 years or so, I've been studying the racial, ethnic, and migration experiences of youth and families from diverse racial backgrounds with a particular focus on Asian American populations. One of the projects that I've been doing for quite a long time has been studying Korean children who've been adopted transracially and transnationally into white families. And that alone is a very interesting dynamic, but I think it also provides us with a lens to look at a broad range of interracial dynamics and relationships. In this special presentation, we will be sharing the candid stories of parents who are navigating issues of race and racism with their young children. Parents have a pivotal role in fostering positive racial identities among children. However, it is understandable that parents may experience concerns when broaching these conversations. The fear of saying the wrong thing or not knowing how to address complex topics can be daunting. I hope parents will see themselves in the stories we have shared. I want listeners to understand that they are not alone in their parenting experiences concerning these issues. Rich and I will also weigh in and share some insights into the often challenging but important work of talking with young children about race and racism. First encounters with race and racism can have a lasting impact on a child, even into adulthood. By being intentional with their actions, parents serve an important role in boosting positive feelings about race and identity for children. Acacia Ward, a biracial single mother raising her son in Rochester, Minnesota, recounts her first experience with race and racism. My first ever experience with race was, I think, my very first day on the kindergarten bus going home, a fifth grader was calling me the so he's calling me the n-word and I didn't know what it meant at the time and I got in trouble because I told him like if you don't stop calling me that I'm gonna hurt you so that was my first encounter with race and then after that my mom got called you know and then we talked about it so and you were how old again I was in kindergarten so probably about five or six yeah throughout my life my mom made sure I was very aware and conscious about being different and she welcomed it. And so I think she handled it appropriately. I don't know. I was so little. The school definitely didn't handle it appropriately, but my mom has always encouraged me and just loved me for who I was. Right. So I think she handled it well, or I wouldn't be as strong as I am today. So, (laughs) you know, this story that Acacia talks about, unfortunately, 
is a pretty common one Mm -hmm. that happens on buses and playgrounds. What really strikes me is that she's in kindergarten when it happens. And the person that called her the N-word was in fifth grade. So that person's a lot older than her. Mm -hmm. And so she was probably really scared for a number of reasons. And she says the school did not handle it well. And I'm wondering if they even recognized that this child has had their first racialized traumatic experience. They probably didn't. And so probably handled it like any other. But I just find that that fascinating. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And it really resonated with me hearing that story because like you said, the school bus is such a common setting for how kids experience race and racism for the first time. It is. It it actually reminded me right when I heard her telling this story about when I was a young elementary school kid Mm -hmm. on a school bus. And I remember a white older kid said something to me and I said, don't say that to me again. Mm -hmm. And he said it. And I said, if you say it again, I'm going to punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. (laughs) And then you probably got in trouble. (laughs) Well, back then you didn't really get in trouble for that kind of behavior. (laughs) But, you know, but. You know, I think you bring up a really good point, too, in terms of this is a fifth grader bullying a kindergartner and finding it completely appropriate to do. And we know from research that someone who's in fifth grade, who's 10, 11, 12 years old, Mm -hmm. has a much better understanding of what race and racism are. Yeah. And a fifth grader does not. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the other thing is that this kid in knowingly and intentionally targeted a younger child. That's the really sad, tragic part about these types of stories that we hear time and time again. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That fifth grader knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. What I am happy to hear about, though, is that it sounds like her mom handled it well. She doesn't remember what her mom did, which means she probably did handle it well, because if she didn't handle it well, she probably would remember. (laughs) She probably would remember it better. Um, So it was probably a positive experience. And that is so important, especially for children of color, to have a good support network. Because when I say, like in Minnesota especially, it's not an if, but a when. So when it does happen, they have family and loved ones that can put some context around it and and help them to get strong. Yeah. The psychologist Diane Hughes describes what the mom did as preparation for bias, mm. a particular form of racial socialization that families often engage in. What's really striking is how the mom clearly began doing that at such a young age. Yeah. And it equipped that child you know, and it helped that child make sense out of that experience, both then and now. Yes. And what I think is even more striking is because, you know, she was only five. And one of the things I've heard often on Early Risers is that parents often think that at that young age, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're already dealing with mm-hmm. an issue that's that's racialized, where, you know, research shows that these incidents happen younger and younger. But oftentimes we don't realize that and are not prepared as parents. Um, but 
her mom did seem to be prepared for that conversation, which I think is good and and something to think about, you know, for parents and caregivers is that we can get ready for it. We don't have to Mm -hmm. be caught off guard. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, there are things we can do to prepare for that conversation. Yeah, and a lot of research with parents from all different racial backgrounds. One of the things that we find consistently is that parents tend to prefer engaging in preparing children for bias, racially socializing their kids when they're much older. Mm-hmm. They think they're they're not ready at that young age. Yes. Here we see that this girl did benefit from a mom who was able to prepare her. Conversations about race and racism rarely come at a convenient time. We often find ourselves surprised and unprepared. Ayan Omar is a mother of two biracial daughters living in St. Cloud, Minnesota. She and her husband were caught off guard by an exchange she had with their three-year-old daughter. I remember when Sophia was about three, I was giving her a bath, and she started to wash my hand. And I asked her, honey, what's going on? She said, "I I want to wash the brown off of you. So you could look like daddy and I. Mm. And now keep in mind, we've been intentional. We've, we did everything by the book. I'm, I'm an equity director. I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. So even with the intentionality of approaching our child with more broad vision, it still came up. Yeah. And I knew it was going to come up. I just didn't know it would come up at, at three. Right. It's, right. it's like, right. whoa. So I remember stepping out the bathroom, getting my husband and telling him, I don't know what, I, I can't indoctrinate a three-year-old with race conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for a long time, she would describe her dad as sparkly pink. Mm. And she was pink and I was brown. Mm. I'm like, why is he sparkly pink? There's nothing sparkly about him, <laughs> right? That's a uh, good question. Right. Yeah, why was he sparkly? Right. You were <laughs> that added layer of he's sparkly pink. And I and I left the bathroom and I went to my husband and we went into the bathroom with the conversation of Brown, uh, who mom is. Uh, mom identifies as uh, black and dad identifies as white, and it's because our family, being from East Africa. Ayeyo, which is grandma in Somali, grandma. Mm-hmm. And we are a product of two loving families. And with those loving families, we decided to get married and have her. And she's a product of both of us. And it's not something you can wash off. Um, and what we do is we have books around the house. Again, it goes back to that intentionality, reminding her that everyone's beautiful and it's not what you perceive on the outside. It's truly what's on the inside. And she has to be able to ask enough questions in life. You know, when I listen to this story, it reminds me of when I interviewed Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and she talks about racism being the smog we all breathe. Mm -hmm. Because this parent, these parents, you know, she said we did everything right. Um, 
We, you know, we talk about this and yet and still at three years old, their daughter doesn't want her mother to be as brown as she is. And so there are things happening in our environment, even outside of the home, that are sending her daughter messages, even at three, that are telling her that brown is not good. What do you say to that? Yeah, there's so much to unpack with this story. Yeah. My mind was going in a lot of different directions. One of the things that really struck me about it is that with very young kids, three-year-olds, who are still learning their words, and yet they're still trying to make sense out of things in the world. Yep. And it's more the action than the words that really stand out in terms of, you know, can you can just visualize a girl scrubbing a mom's hand. And she's trying to make sense out of, I got one parent that looks like this and another parent that looks like this, and this is what I look like. One of us is not. One of these things doesn't belong. Yeah, one of these things doesn't belong. <laughs> yeah. And so she's trying to make sense out of it she through is. an action. And I love how the mom handled it by leaving the room for a second, getting her husband mm-hmm. and mom and dad together talk with that child. That was, the, that was to me, yes. what really stood out. Yes. A lot of times when these situations like this happen, it's bath time, you know, you're on your, your parent, you're probably thinking about, okay, we're going to take this bath and we're going to get mm-hmm. in our PJs. You know, you're thinking about the, the evening and then all of a sudden out of the blue, mm-hmm. this happens. Mm-hmm. So you're not thinking, you're not in that moment prepared for that. And so stepping away and taking a moment is really smart. Mm-hmm. You know, you could tell even how, as she was talking about it, she was really blown away in that moment, surprised and shocked and all of those things that her daughter said that. And so having the the wisdom to step away for a moment and get her husband so that we together can have this conversation, mm-hmm. I think, too, was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean... One of the things that we found in our research with families that are formed through interracial marriage or partnerships is that the burden is often on the partner of color Mm. to have to have these conversations with Mm -hmm. their children. That is such an unfair burden. And it's also very problematic because it communicates to a child, this is not a white person's problem. Uh. So that's what I love about her stepping away, taking a breath, but then getting her husband so that they can talk about it collectively, together. Yes, yes. And that sends a very different message. Welcome back to Early Risers, Parent Perspectives on Racial Equity in Early Childhood. When parents navigate issues of race and racism, it is natural to be concerned, not only about a child's well-being, but also about how to respond to situations that may cause harm. Cecilia Amadou and her husband both immigrated to the U.S. from Africa. Her family relocated to the Fargo-Moorhead area in Minnesota. They live in an area that is over 90% white. She worries about how to preserve her son's ability to be proud of where he comes from, while also just enjoying being a kid. 
that one day I'm going to look at my son and know that he won't have to fear opportunities and his dreams may be shattered by somebody along the road. Mm. It's, it's one of the hardest things to take in because obviously when, you know, you had somebody on the podcast I talked about when their kids are in the room and just not being able to behave a certain way because of the skin color, they can't act like the white kids in the playground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me because that's Emric. I want him to be a child. I don't want to take that innocence away from him. Yeah. But his dad, on the other hand, is always like, Emric, move, move out of the way. And I'm constantly be like, no, he needs to be in this space just like everybody else. He needs right. to be respectful. He can't break things. He can't dominate the space, but he can share the space with whoever is in that space. He doesn't have to move away from anybody else. But my, my husband is very, um, I say this in a good way, very African in, in the sense, um, the, the, our cultures, we are taught at a very young age to respect anybody that's older than us, mm-hmm. celebrate anything that's different from us. I think my husband moves that into now raising his son and how his parents raise him to, you know, be cognizant, but also, especially when it's a white, we're in a white space, you move out of the way and, you almost don't belong in the way. And he fights me sometimes. He thinks I'm always thinking about this and always making a big deal out of it. But I'm saying, I mean, he has his whole life to worry about that. Yeah. But at four, I don't want him to worry about that. I want him to play. How she talks about this is really, there's a lot in there because what she's talking about is how for some children or some parents of color, for survival or for whatever, they will teach their children to move out of the way when white people come or, you know, say you're in one of those big playrooms where all the kids are playing and your child gets a little louder than the other child maybe or maybe throws something. Now, the white kids may be throwing things, but when your child throws something, you might begin to feel like, well, somebody's going to have an issue with that because my, you know, my black child is throwing something. We understand that there's a double standard. And so what she's saying is, I don't care about that double standard. I just want my child to be a child, just like any other child. And to not have to be burdened at this young age with the preconceived notions of other people, which I think is really brave. Um, in this day and age to, to really want that for your child and then to provide that, to work to provide that, you know, for your child, for them to be able to be, well, as she says, as innocent as long as, as he can. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the burden point you made that you don't want your child to be burdened. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're, when you experience prejudice, bias, you know, you want your child to, to be aware of those issues. You want them to be equipped to respond, but you also want them to be in spaces and in position where they don't have to have that. Yes. That they can just live their life free. Free and unburdened. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think about my parents who are immigrants from South Korea and we never had the talk about race or racism really growing up. You know, it was more the keep your head down, work mm-hmm. hard, be kind. Yep. 
And I remember before my mom died, when I was much older, I was talking with her about some challenges, some, you know, I can't even remember what it was about, but it was about racism. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, then why did we move here? Wow. And it was a heartbreaking moment for her Mm -hmm. because as an immigrant, much like Cecilia, I think she had mentioned from Ghana, you know, you travel across the world for an opportunity to have a better life for yourself and for your child. Right. And you're not prepared for these barriers. Yeah. Because you look different. And so it's heartbreaking for a parent to have to question the choices that they made, the position that they placed their child in. Yes. And then in the midst of that, like she says, how do we find joy in life? How do we move forward? And I have a number of colleagues who've been big proponents of the idea of radical healing in the midst of racism and racial trauma. And one of the key components of that is still finding a way to live a joy-filled life. That's radical. It is. And it may not be radical for people who've always been privileged. But when you haven't had all that, it's radical to just live this carefree life. And what parent doesn't want that for their child? We all want that. We all want that. Yeah, I'm still wanting that. Conversations about race and racism are not only limited to parents of color. White parents also have concerns about how to have productive conversations with their children about race and racism. Ellen Gettler is a white mom raising two sons with her husband in a diverse community in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Ellen recognizes that conversations about race with her family can be challenging because she didn't grow up talking about race. The first thing I feel like I have to be honest about when asked, how do I talk to my kids about race, is that I don't know how. I don't think that we collectively, as white people, have done the work for a long enough time, both internally, in community, and with our kids, to feel like we have a strong grasp on how. And so I think it's important to just say that because for a long time, when I started to try to talk to my kids about race, I felt like there was an answer or like a way I should be doing it, and I just needed to find it or I just needed to do it right, or maybe I was doing it wrong. And it has felt like learning for me to just understand that we are learning together how to do this. And in some senses, I feel like my kids are my greatest teachers because I'm learning alongside them. I mean, I really am. That doesn't mean that I don't work really hard to get my own supports around it, but I think it's just a reality that this is a new collective experience for white parents. I really appreciate Ellen's honesty in talking about how she really doesn't know how to do this. And I think that that is a better place to be than either ignoring it or acting like you do know what to say when you really don't. And how she's describing this sounds to me a lot like a journey. And so I I like that because issues around race and talking to your children around race, it's more of a journey than a destination. And so she she is openly on this journey with her children. 
and acknowledging that sometimes her children do teach her things too, which, you know, any parent, any honest parent will admit that that often happens. Our children do teach us, but that she's also actively getting her own support around this, which I think is really important. Sometimes we, as adults, we just assume that anyone in our life can support us in this, mm-hmm. talking about race. And that's not always true. Sometimes there are people in our lives that cannot handle a, a good, honest conversation around race. And if that's the case, it doesn't mean we get rid of that person in our lives, mm-hmm. but it might mean that we find other people that can have this conversation that can be non-judgmental as we talk about our issues so that you can have a sounding board and support around it. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's the thing is that we're not on our journey alone. Yes. It's when we're on our, when we feel like we're on the journey alone that it seems overwhelming. So my recommendation would be to someone like Ellen, who's around you? Where do you feel safe and comfortable talking about these issues? Mm-hmm. Find that community. And if you can't, what's holding you back? And are you willing to take the cost to get that? Welcome back to Early Risers, Parent Perspectives on Racial Equity in Early Childhood. One of the biggest challenges for parents as they address issues of race and racism is how to prepare their child for a time when they will be confronted by these issues. This parental advocacy can take many forms. Kai and James Miller are a married African-American couple that also live in Rochester, Minnesota. One of the ways that they prepare their daughters is by using affirmations. We sit them down, we take all distractions away from them, and we make them like almost scream these things (laughs) because sometimes they like to talk really, really shy and low Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's like, nope, you all have big voices. Speak up, hold your head up, stick your chest out, plant your feet and say it like you mean it. And even if you don't mean it, we're going to keep saying it until you do. Mm-hmm. Count my saying. Till you believe it. Yeah, till you believe it. And uh try to remember I am smart. I am important. I can do hard things. It's okay to fall. It's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. I must always give my best and keep trying, something like that. I can be a leader. Today's gonna be a good day. I know it ends on today is gonna be a good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a lot. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And we that part about making mistakes and things like that was important for us to add because they get really down on themselves. Yeah. They don't get something right. I absolutely love this clip of Kai and James talking about the affirmations they do with their daughters for several reasons. But I love what they said when they say, They tell their daughters, we're going to keep saying this until you believe it. And for so many children of color growing up in places like Minnesota, and people may not always realize this, but 
they encounter, you know, even from a young age, there's always, it's not really an if, but a when they're going to encounter pushback against who they are. So they're going to encounter someone that calls them a slur or refers to other people that look like them as a slur or just general unbelief that they can accomplish things. And oftentimes, the people that are perpetrating it, sometimes they know what they're doing, but a lot of times they don't even realize what they're doing. And so that's where the implicit bias comes in. So by the time a child is 7, 8, 9, 10, if there's not something else coming against that, boosting them up, then like Kai and James have talked about, you know, they found their daughters just really lacking in self-esteem. And so I love that they, as parents, have the wherewithal to be creative about a solution about how to build and boost their children's self-esteem. What it made me think about was how for people who are in the majority and in this country, you know, people with power, which is, you know, people who are white, for them, these affirmations are all around them in their neighborhoods, in their schools, Mm -hmm. authority figures, in the media, of course. And so while everyone can benefit from affirmations, some have it all around them all the time, and others do not. And when you don't have it around you, you have to have someone like a parent or a mentor or a teacher, Mm -hmm. right? Who reminds you? Yeah. And so Kai and James, are, you know, seem like wonderful parents who are really making that effort to socialize their children to have pride in who they are and to remind them. And learning that self-talk is a really good psychological tool to have for when you're struggling or when you encounter a situation where you're in doubt you can remind yourself you have that self-talk. And the other thing it's doing, although they don't directly say it, it's also communicating to their children, you should be proud to be a Black young woman. Mm, Absolutely. And so what they're really also doing at the same time as building their self-esteem is they're building this positive ethnic and racial identity to say, don't be ashamed of who you are and who we are as a family, right? You remember what we taught you. Kai and James told me that as African-American parents, they sometimes feel isolated. That isolation has affected their daughters, who don't always see themselves represented in school or in the community. So a few years ago, Kai and James started taking concrete steps to build their daughter's confidence and self-esteem. So now you both are, you're in Minnesota, raising your two daughters. And if you all have talked to your children yet about race, and if so, kind of, how has that conversation gone? So we're in in Rochester. And Mm -hmm. so um, being in Minnesota is very different compared to how the both of us grew up. Mm-hmm. We both grew up in predominantly Black areas. Mm. And so to come here mm-hmm. and to rarely see yeah. us, it's like, 
Hmm. That's difficult. It's it's we'll never different. We see a black person. It's like it's like we're hey, we're man. yeah. It's like we're all <laughs> like we're both like happy to see each other. We're just right. waving and smiling. <laughs> and the girls going to school again, not seeing themselves in their peers, in their teachers. That whole idea that representation matters is incredibly true because it was to the point where my youngest, and I forget how old she was. I think she was about six Mm -hmm. at the time, five or six years old. And she told us that she did not like her skin. Mm. And she said she felt like her skin was dirty. Mm. And... She didn't like her hair. She didn't like her hair. She didn't like her skin because she wanted it to look like, she wanted it to be straight. She wanted Mm. it to look like all of these princesses that she sees on Disney or Mm -hmm. like her classmates. And it's like, but your hair is so beautiful. Like it does things that nobody else's hair can do. Like. Right. They pay you to get their hair done like yours. Like, girl, it's amazing. And hearing her say that she didn't like herself because she didn't see herself was heartbreaking. Yeah. And so, like, we had to switch everything up. We took all the Barbies away Mm -hmm. and switched them out for Black Barbies uh, that had different textured hair. I printed out from like Walgreens, a bunch of pictures of little black girls and I posted them everywhere on their room. I bought coloring books that had black characters and things like that. Mm -hmm. I tried my best to find as many cartoons and movies that had black characters as possible. And over time, how she felt about herself started to change because she could see herself more. (laughs) And I never heard her say again that she hated herself or that she hated her hair. And then not even just that, but we were constantly reaffirming to them both that they're beautiful, that their skin is beautiful, that your hair is beautiful. Like everything about you is amazing. And it changed. You know, representation means a lot. It means a lot. This story, well, Kai and James' story and their daughters is, it's almost painful to hear parts of it when they talk about how their daughters didn't want to be the color that they are and didn't like their hair. And for me, it's it's kind of personal, too, because I remember, you know, growing up in suburb of St. Paul, I remember feeling that way, you know, when I was very, very young. And for a parent, it's just a, it is like a heartbreaking feeling that your child doesn't want to be who they are. And I, I remember, cause this was, you know, a different time, long time ago. <laughs> and so I remember, I just have this vision of my mother at the uh, stove dying my Barbie dolls. Cause you know, back then we didn't, have mm-hmm. we couldn't go out and buy a black Barbie doll mm-hmm. or a doll that was any color other mm-hmm. than a white, you know, a white Barbie doll or a white doll or anything, especially in Minnesota. And I remember thinking, why is she doing that? Well, now, of course, as a parent, I understand why she did that. 
And her creativity, my mother's creativity, Kai and James' creativity is kind of what is needed in moments like that Mm -hmm. to really kind of combat that and come against that pervasiveness that's in our society that there is only one way to look one way to be acceptable in your skin and in your hair and all of that. So I really appreciate how creative that they got as parents. Yeah, God, we all have those stories, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember same era (laughs) growing up and going to the Korean church that I attended with my parents and learning about how kids would take double stick tape and put them in their eyelids. To make their eyes bigger. And I remember going home and trying to understand how that would work. Mm. And you're like, damn, Mm -hmm. you know, that's so messed up. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand it. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing I was thinking about with representation matters is the fact that there's no one way to be Asian American, African American, that you could dress one way or another way. There's yeah. not one hairstyle you need to have or no. one fashion you need to, you know, present. And, you know, growing up, I remember I'd feather my hair and try to look <laughs> so good. And, you know, but all of it Looked was like based, Sean Cassidy. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly right. You yeah. were trying to mimic yes. what you saw out in the media, that's which right. was that's a right. wall of whiteness, you know. My kids get up, their hair looks horrible in my <laughs> eyes, and they just go straight to school. <laughs> yeah, my- and I'm thinking, that's so amazing <laughs> yeah. that they don't feel that pressure to assimilate, that they yeah. just go out because that's what their white friends do. Mm-hmm, no is. one gives mm-hmm. them any crap. And so that's where representation matters, that you should be able to live authentically however you want, that there should be no pressure to be a stereotype. When issues of race and racism occur, it can often leave you struggling with how to respond in the moment. For a child, that can be overwhelming. Ayan Omar helps her daughter advocate for herself by providing a backpack full of responses so her daughter can develop language to stand up for herself. So with my daughters, uh, that biracial complexity in the environment of central Minnesota, it comes up and I feel a constant need to be one step ahead of the conversation Mm. by asking questions. Um, She has peers that look like her, also biracial, um, but she's coming back asking questions Mom, am I Muslim or am I Somali? Because she doesn't speak Somali and her religion isn't as visible as it is for her peers who wear the hijab. So that constant validation, that constant negotiation for her as a fourth grader is becoming more reoccurring than when she was younger. You said that you like to try to stay one step ahead of the conversation with your children. What does that mean to you? And what are some of the ways that you do that? Stay one step ahead of that conversation. What it looks like is outlining scenarios with my kid, different scenarios and different ways to respond, really giving her 
a backpack full of responses of different scenarios that I feel she might acquire or inquire. For example, how come you don't wear the hijab? Or how are you half black because you have beautiful, luscious curls, right? Mm -hmm. How to respond to those. So whenever it comes up, mom, am I half Somali? I capitalize on those opportunities. Just feeding off of that question, uncovering a lot more questions about her identity as a Muslim, um, having a refugee mom, um, her as a Somali, her as a Black woman, um, Blackness in, in our community, right? not even in a larger scale, keeping it local and immediate for her, conversations or qu- inquiries that might come from her peers, inquiries that might come from adults. I really like the way she talks about prepping because the thing about oftentimes racial interactions and racial conversations is that often people feel caught off guard because they don't know what to say because we are not taught what to say and how to conversate about this. And so what Ion is doing, however, she's basically teaching and training her daughter how to say it so that she is not caught off guard, so that when somebody asks a certain question, she knows exactly how to respond and she doesn't feel like she's going to say necessarily the wrong thing. She already knows and she doesn't have to fear those conversations either because she already knows what to say. Yeah, I loved Ion's notion of a backpack full of responses. Mm -hmm. And so what she's doing here is really using that one question to explore many questions and to practice how to figure out how to answer these questions, you know, for her daughter to figure out how to answer these questions on her own. So she's equipping her with the tools to figure out how to do it on her own later in life. And one thing that we find in research is that in the moment when a child or an adult experiences a racial conflict or a tense sort of situation, people don't really know how to respond in a constructive, adaptive way. We freeze. We kind of get in that fight or flight. Yep. Or we get angry. Or we get angry. Yeah. But there are many other ways to respond in between the two. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's what she's really working hard on with her child. I've been in situations at professional conferences with other scholars of color who study racism. And we've encountered prejudiced comments or discriminatory sort of statements tossed at us while we're eating at a restaurant, drinking a beer at the hotel lobby. And I've watched these experts freeze in those moments because we don't, as a society, tend to practice these skills. We're discouraged, in fact. That's true. We're discouraged because you're making a big deal out of something. You're misconstruing what a person's saying. Right. And so we're socialized to keep our mouths shut. So true. So true. And why? We have every right to defend ourselves in those situations, to stand up for ourselves, to speak up when we feel wrong. Absolutely. And so we need to all have backpacks full of responses. (laughs) And that's what I love about this, because anybody can do this. Mm -hmm. Anybody can, you know, think 
and prepare and think of a backpack of of responses. It reminds me of one of my former guests, Dr. Rosemary Allen, talks about having a treasure trove of responses. And anyone can do that. I asked Ian, what is in her backpack? Well, first, what I try to do is validate what it means to be human. So I always tell my child, I say, honey, people just don't know what they don't know. And you, as a human, are full of stories. It's not that they're coming from a place of malice, but rather they are genuinely interested in learning more about you. So getting her to control the narrative rather than someone else controlling the narrative. So her perception is most valuable to me. So I try to get her to see the question for what it is and not the energy or the person it's coming from. The, The barriers and people's natural interest in my daughter won't go away. Right. No, because right. she's so multifaceted, multi-layered, and people should right. want to get to know my daughter. She's a wonderful human being, right? So I try to empower her by really staying true to herself and controlling her perceptions of other people and not perceiving it as if, as you said, something isn't right. I'm different. I don't want her to perceive mm-hmm. herself as different. I want her to perceive her as a benefit, an asset that she can bring to any conversation. Um, So that's the first thing I do. You'll have questions. That's natural. Every human has questions about other humans. We're social beings. We want to get to know each other. What I love about how Ayan is having this conversation with her daughter is that it's also helping her daughter to process who she is and know who she is and and, get real strong in that. She also mentioned something else. You know, sometimes when, now this isn't always the case. Sometimes people really are just trying to be mean. A lot of times people just have general interest and they have nobody to really tell them. And so they will ask a question, not really intently, even though the question may come off as offensive. That's not really the intent. They're just generally trying to to understand. And so by kind of training her daughter that this is not, you know, people just want to know. And and you should be somebody that people want to know because you're interesting. You have a lot of, to give. You have a lot to offer the world. So why why wouldn't they want to get to know you? I think is is a real different and kind of positive take on that. And so preparing responses that are that are just saying, hey. I'm just trying to give you, you know, you ask a question. I'm just trying to give you some information. Control the narrative is a great phrase Mm -hmm. for parents to remember and for people to remember when they are put in a situation where questions are being asked or they're being perceived and treated in a certain way. Yeah, It's easy to allow the other person to have all the power and to just give in. Yes. So as an Asian American, a classic example of that is when someone asks, where are you from? Mm. Where are you really from? You could say, they're just curious. They want to know something about you. On the other hand, is that a question that they would ask any other person in the room? Would they ask their white friends that? No, they wouldn't. Of course not. And so in that moment, you could feel like, oh, I should just answer them. They're Mm -hmm. just being curious. 
but you were letting them control the narrative yes. of who mm-hmm. I am, how yeah. I see myself. Yeah. So over the years, I've learned to respond to that question in a very different way. You know, I was at a grocery store and the cashier saying hello in three different Asian languages. Okay. And then says, oh, but, and where are you from? And I looked at her and I just said, you know, it was really offensive what you said. And it makes an assumption that I don't belong here, that Mm -hmm. I'm not American. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I intended to say. But that's how you made me feel. And so what Ayan is doing is really teaching her child that she can control the narrative of how she wants to be seen in the world. And that that's a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I wish all parents could teach their children that because kids in general feel so much pressure to live up to the standards and expectations of others. To validate your child and say, you are unique. You've got special things to offer this world. You share those things. And you define you. By initiating conversations about race and racism early on, parents can provide their children with a foundation to comprehend the world around them. These dialogues cultivate a sense of awareness, empathy, and critical thinking, preparing children to be compassionate and inclusive individuals. As a parent, I've learned that we need to be intentional about helping all children to have conversations about race and racism so they can develop positive racial identities. Discussing race and racism allows parents to address the harsh realities of systemic inequalities that persist in our society. By providing children with knowledge and understanding, parents can empower their children to challenge and dismantle racism, fostering a generation that will actively have conversations about race so we all can have a more equitable future. This special presentation of Early Risers was hosted by me, Diane Halsey, with special guest, Dr. Richard Lee. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our producers are Twyla Dang and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our technical director is Alex Simpson. Our social media manager is Katie DeSalle. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about the Early Risers podcast, go to our website, at npr.org backslash early risers or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast Early. As always, a special thank you to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.